When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, thanks so much for joining us again. And uh, you have a really interesting story here about uh, clever crows. Good morning. Yes, I spotted this one. It's in the journal Scientific Reports. Hmm. And a friend of mine works on crows. And so I, it immediately caught my attention because these are really clever birds. Nikki Clayton, who's my friend, she calls them feathered Einsteins <laughs> because they are able to solve problems that no one would have thought that an animal of this tiny size hmm. should be able to solve. This new paper shows that these birds are even brighter, perhaps, than we had given them credit for. What these researchers do is they show the birds a food reward which is inside a box, and they okay. can reach the food reward with a, through a slot, and they have to hook it out with a tool. Mm. But what is crafty about this experiment is that the tool isn't long enough to get to the food. So the birds know they've got to use the tool, potentially. Mm. They know that the food's in the box, and they can possibly hook it out but they don't know how to reach it. What they can do, though, is that the tool is carefully crafted so that if you take one piece of it, you can connect one piece of it to the next piece of it, like a telescope, making a longer tool. Mm. And you can then thread this longer tool in through the slot to hook out the food item. Now, the birds have never been shown this. They don't know any of the pieces of apparatus. They don't know how to solve the problem they've never seen anyone else solve the problem they put eight birds into the experiment independently and half of them realized that if they took each of the pieces of the tool and slotted them together to make a much longer tool hmm. then they'd be able to reach the food and retrieve it now why this is amazing is that not only are these birds planning for their future they're able to say well if i do this then this will happen they're able to visualize something which doesn't even exist yet a longer tool hmm. and visualize making a longer tool from two shorter pieces now that really is very clever and you know most little human babies would not work that out until they're quite a bit older so it's really impressive that these birds are able to even do this in the first place it's even more impressive that they can solve these sorts of problems that, that even human children wouldn't solve initially hmm. this compound tool making is, is something that we didn't predict was was a capability of of birds and birds like this one of the interesting things um I always remember thinking about is just the migration patterns of birds and how they sort of know their way around. But now we're learning that they're even able to sort of make these more complex tools. Mm. I mean, it, it is impressive when you look at nature, isn't it? I mean, mm. but the, the migration may be slightly less so because the thing is these birds' lives depend on that. So they have had millions of years of, of evolution to help them. It's not immediately obvious why having this incredible reasoning ability should have been endowed upon these birds, though, because um, they, they, their lives don't depend on being able to think several steps into the future to make these sorts of tools. Or maybe they do. We don't know. It's obviously something that's evolving actively, hmm. um, but we don't know why they're so good at doing this. I mean, this isn't the first experiment of its type. There were some, some uh, scientists in Cambridge, hmm. uh, where I work, who did a, a similar experiment a few years ago, where they put the birds in a cage, and they, they had a worm 
in a, in a tube that the birds could see and the worm was floating on water in the tube. But the birds couldn't reach far enough down into the tube to get to the worm. Mm. But next to the tube was a pile of stones. The birds didn't know that they could use the stones, but they very quickly realised and worked out that if they picked up a stone and dropped it into the tube, the water level went up a bit. And if they did this mm. lots of times, the water level came up far enough that they could then reach into the tube and get the worm. And more often than not, the birds would learn to solve these problems. So why they have this ability, we don't know. But they certainly have extremely advanced reasoning ability and planning ability. Really interesting mysteries. Makes me wonder whether I'd be able to solve that if put in a high-pressure situation. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you would be able to. I hope you would. <laughs> I think I'm going to stick to the broadcasting and, and the writing. Yeah, I mean, maybe that makes two of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Chris, I had a question for you, um, and I wonder if you could satisfy my curiosity uh, before we get to the calls, which I see are already coming in. Uh, it's this question of sleep. Uh, we laugh a lot in South Africa because uh, some of our parliamentarians are, are prone to napping at crucial times in, in public debates, and we have this term sleepist for people who sleep in Parliament. But actually, I've been uh, reading Dr. Matthew Walker's, uh, who's, who's out of Berkeley, a new book on, on the importance of sleep and some of the mysteries of why we even sleep um, and and just breaking this myth that a lack of sleep is actually something to, to pursue, whereas in actual fact, we find that sleep debt actually impairs us a lot. Um, should we be sleepists? <laughs> well, I wouldn't advocate being a sleepist and you know, missing important debates. But <laughs> the fact is that, that if you look at most animals, mm. they, they sleep like we do. And the fact that so many different species over evolutionary time have prioritized sleep, we mm. spend a third of our lives doing it. And if we don't do it, it's possible to go mad or, in the case of small animals, to die if you are not capable of getting enough sleep. Mm. Then, as a result, it must be very important. So, for some reason evolution wants us to sleep now some people argue that the reason humans go to sleep is because sleep coincides with night time night time's dangerous because there are things around that could eat you so if you make a person drop off go to sleep and hide uh, in a nice cozy bed at the end of the day you're less likely to get eaten so there's one advantage to go and sleep at night but hmm. of course some animals are active at night so it can't be the whole story and by delving into the brain we're getting a better idea as to why sleep is a priority. One suggestion is that the brain accumulates various bits of biochemical rubbish during the day. And this is because the brain is cocooned behind what we call the blood-brain barrier, which protects the neurochemical environment of the brain because it's very delicate and carefully controlled mm. from what's going on in the bloodstream. And uh, when you're awake and active during the day, you're eating and drinking all kinds of things, so your blood chemistry can change quite radically. We don't want that happening in the brain because it might upset the ability of the brain to do its job. So the brain keeps itself away from what's going on in the blood when you're awake, and then when you go to sleep, this special system called the glymphatic system kicks in, opens up various channels, and flushes away all the accumulated rubbish and biochemical waste from your day's activities. So it may well be that part of the important role of sleep is a cleansing process for the brain, washing away all the accumulated rubbish. We also know that memory is consolidated when you go to sleep. Hmm. It, it's apparent, it's clear now, that sleep isn't just an on or off state. Your brain goes through various phases when you go to sleep. There are phases of intense activity. There are phases of much lower levels of activity. 
when you test people who've been asked to remember things and who have been given the chance to sleep mm. after being given these things to remember, their recall is significantly enhanced afterwards. So we think that part of the process of memory consolidation and information consolidation and learning consolidation, that mm. takes place when we go to sleep. And, and sleep may divorce you from the normal distractions of the day, enabling those memory circuits to lay down the correct... Uh, footprint, if you like, of those memories, so you remember them better later. Mm, mm. About to hit 20 minutes past 10, and I'm Cesar M. Borfa-Walsh with you on this final day of Standing In. And we're with the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Lots of your calls streaming in, and we're going to get right to them now to try and satisfy your curiosity on a range of scientific, uh, scientific questions. And we've got Werner, who'd like to ask a question. Werner, welcome. Yes, hi. Uh, good morning. Hi. Um, hi. Um, my question is quite quite a um, uh, maybe subjective one. I grew up in Switzerland and watching soccer on television. Mm. Moved to South Africa 13 years ago and still watching soccer on television. But then started watching rugby. What I notice is that every time the ref play or you know uh, uh, blows the whistle, that rugby whistle seems seems different than the soccer whistle. And I've been really um, um, observing. Um, in these last couple of times when I watch these different games, these different sports, that for, in my view, um, these are the rugby whistle sounds a lot more subdued, whereas the soccer whistle is, uh, um, yeah, more forceful. How can that be? Is it just me? Is it really a subjective uh, matter or is there uh, actual different uh, whistle they use? <laughs> Thanks, Do you know, I, I think we need a proper objective test on this because I don't know the answer to that. I don't hmm. know if the whistles used or favoured by rugby refs hmm. are different to the, f to the whistles favoured by football refs. But if anyone knows the answer to this, any football refs on and can phone us up and tell us, that would be wonderful. Or just tweet at Naked Scientist because this is intriguing. It might be that there genuinely is a difference in the whistles used because the frequency of the sound is going to be a reflection on how big the whistle is, hmm. how long it is, and the apple used to make the sound and so on because that will affect the frequency but it might also be where the microphones are around the game because football can be mic'd up a bit different to rugby i don't know for sure if it is but it's possible and if you mic up an event differently the microphones that you use and the positioning of the microphones that you use are going to affect the relative way in which the sound is picked up and that will affect your interpretation of the sound as it comes to you so it could be all of the above i don't know the answer i would love to know if anyone one can tell us hmm. really interesting Werner as a loyal Liverpool fan I also want to know why the whistle isn't blown when we have a clear penalty given to us but uh, probably not a scientific question Sheldon though has a scientific question and we're going to go to him now good day um, mine's quite simple I want to know why every full moon the high tides are always plus minus three o'clock it never goes below, below further between two and four. Is there an explanation for that? Oh, okay. Thanks. Uh, hello. Um, well, first of all, why do we have the, the moon cycle? The reason we have a cycle of the moon, a full moon, a new moon, quarter moon, half moon, etc., is because the Earth turns inside the orbit of the moon, and the moon is going slowly around the Earth, and the moon takes about a month to go from where it starts right the way around the Earth and then back to where it started. So we see different phases of the moon because when the moon comes up, 
relative to the sun, we're seeing one side of the moon being illuminated. And depending upon where the moon is relative to us and the sun, we're going to see more or less of the moon's surface illuminated by the sun, and that's why you see different phases of the moon. Now, why does that affect the tides? It affects the tides because the moon is pulling the water on the surface of the Earth closest to the moon towards the moon. It accelerates the water a bit, so you get a bulge of water facing the moon because the gravitational attraction of the moon on the Earth pulls the water up there, and that gives you a high tide. Now, that effect will be greatest when the moon and the sun are in alignment, because the sun's pulling on the Earth, and the moon is then pulling on the Earth, and they're both pulling in the same direction. So you get the highest tides in a month when you have a spring tide with the moon and the sun in alignment, either because of a new moon, the moon is on one side of the Earth, the sun on the other, or they're both on the same side of the Earth. You have a neap tide, the lowest tides of the month, when the moon is at 90 degrees to the angle of the sun. Now, because the Earth is turning inside the, the orbit of the moon, then obviously you're going you're gonna to see, um, and the moon doesn't take completely a month to go round, then you, you will find that the um, moon is moving across the sky a little bit every day, so that's why the tides advance by an hour every day. So they always come an hour later each day. And so the high tide today will be an hour earlier than the high tide, the first high tide tomorrow, because the Earth is, the, the moon is, is slowly making its way on its orbit round the Earth. And so the time that, that the moon's highest in the sky coinciding with the Earth is going to change each day. Hmm. Fascinating. Just just love your encyclopedic knowledge, Chris. We have so many calls streaming in. We're going to go to Avon, I think is how it's pronounced in Centurion. Welcome. Hey, how's it, guys? Good, uh, good. Just coming back to that um, that bird uh, bird story. Hmm. I guess if someone calls you a bird brain, it's actually, it could be a compliment. <laughs> eh? we, we should hope yeah. for that. Yeah, I think it really would because um, you know if, if someone if someone calls you bird brain in future, actually, um, they they're they're saying that you're like Einstein. <laughs> it's the same as saying fish have a bad memory. Fish have a really good memory. There's a guy called yeah. Cullen Brown who works in Australia where I am at the moment. I think he's up in Queensland, and he did this study about ten fifteen years ago where he was showing that fish have an excellent memory, and he showed these little fish a fishing net with the hole in the net marked up so they could recognise where they could swim out and escape. And and he taught them to find this hole in the net. Went away and then months to a year later retested them and the fish could still remember how to find the hole very quickly, proving that fish actually have an excellent memory, not a bad one. Yeah, so if anyone tells you that you've got a, f a memory like a fish, that's also wrong as yeah. well. But anyway, I guess that's <laughs> not why you phoned in. Yeah, yeah. so, so my, my real question is quite a, quite a deep one. So it's just in terms of, you know, how we've been able, you know, since the beginning of time or whatever, been able to identify species, whether alien or not, in terms of, uh, and I guess it's somewhat relatable to, you know, our knowledge or our periodic table, for example, the 118 or whatever elements of the periodic table. So if we identify a life form, it's, you know, a carbon-based life form kind of thing. So my question is, and I've wondered about it for some time now, is have we, could it be that maybe our mechanisms to de detect certain life forms are just not sophisticated enough or our technology is not sophisticated enough to actually detect something, you know, that could be existing in Earth at the moment. That could be an alien life form, but, you know, we know what we know. So our ways of identifying um, uh, life forms is, is kind of still 
back backwards in terms of the actual life form that exists. So, so, so what I'm saying is, could there be alien life forms that exist on Earth or even even you know outside of Earth that we've just not developed the technology to detect them as yet or the sophistication to detect them as yet? Is that possible, or is it is it that we we've reached a stage where we can, based on our technology, based on uh, the elements of the periodic table, we be okay. able to identify? Yeah. Thanks. Um, well, the, the bottom line is that you never say never in medicine and biology because biology is an amazing thing and it's had millions of years to work out how to do things. Um, I'm pretty comfortable that most of the major forms of life that exist on Earth, we probably understand them and we probably know they're here. But there are definitely some interesting and exciting things happening at the margins and where we don't necessarily think to look first. Good examples of this are that... Um, a number of years ago, there was this BSE, the bovine spongiform encephalopathy crisis in the UK, where people were feeding the ground-up bits of brain of cows back to cows, and these animals developed this brain-eroding disease, a bit like CJD in humans, which became known as BSE. When people looked into what that was, they realised that it was a form of, whether you, you can call this life or not, but a form of life, a small protein which is made naturally in the brain, but which had gone wrong in some of these cows and changed its shape. And when you exposed the healthy protein to this unusual protein, it then converted the healthy protein into the unhealthy-shaped protein. And those converts could then go off and convert more healthy protein into the unhealthy protein that damages the brain. No one would have believed that you could have a protein capable of transmitting a, a, a behaviour like that in the past. Hmm. Uh, another example is that scientists discovered a whole new type of virus a number of years ago. It was enormous. It was so big. It was bigger than some bacteria. So they called it a mama virus because it was the mother of all viruses. Huge. When they looked even more closely in these viruses, they found these tiny particles, which they subsequently dubbed Sputnik after the satellite that the Russians put into space mm. because it looked like inside these viruses there were these tiny satellites orbiting. When they looked more closely, they found that these tiny satellites were in fact viruses which were preying on the virus. So even viruses oh can catch viruses. And you have these things called virophages. So I think you have to keep an open mind. Um, we always need to be uh, sceptical that we know everything. We don't. Otherwise, we'd all be out of a job. There's all kinds of exciting things waiting to be discovered. But I think we, we know pretty much what the main life forms are on Earth. I don't think there's anything going on that, uh, that on a massive scale that we don't know about. But, of course, out there in space, who knows? And there are these potentially other dimensions that we don't even know exist and we can't detect yet and we can't investigate yet. Um, and if they exist, perhaps there are organisms, perhaps there are entities that can inhabit those dimensions and we can't see them, but they're there. Who knows? Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, it's been... Uh, really fascinating stuff as ever and uh, hope you get some good sleep tonight as well. Well, I'll do my best. <laughs> it's very important to get a good night's sleep, of course, as, you, as you've pointed out. I've, uh, I've decided that in order for me to do what crows can do, I need at least 10 hours of sleep. Well, you, if, if you want to go and make a hook out of a stick and get maggots out of a log, <laughs> um, then be my guest. But I'll stick to, I'll stick to chicken ticker jal frazi, which is my dish of choice. <laughs> Fair enough. It's, it's been great. Thanks again for joining us. And I know you'll be uh, back with us next week with Eusebius uh, resuming regular duty. Thanks so much. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.